Oh, man. My name is Wyatt and I am an alcoholic. I have super bad anxiety and I'm drinking this AA jet fuel. I'm gonna have a panic attack. It's all right, it's all right. Happy birthday, Aria. You know, trudging buddies for sure. We've been through a lot. Aria's called me at midnight crying, pray with me, pray with me. And I do, I do, because that's what we do here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've called her in the same situations and happy birthday, nine years and all the chip takers. Man, it's beautiful. Thank you, Clay. That was a great opening talk. You know, Clay taught me early on that we talk from the heart here in Alcoholics Anonymous. We speak the language of love here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't come in like that. I didn't come in speaking a language of love. At all. <laughs> Clay is, is a trusted friend. Clay is a spiritual advisor. Clay is a sponsor. Clay has done so much for me. He's not going to tell you everything. He has done a lot for me. But you know what I know? Somebody did a lot for him. Somebody did what he does for me for him. And that's what we do here. Somebody, I'm just doing for the next guy, right? I'm just doing for my sponsees what this man did for me. Someone did for him all the way up to Bill. It just has, has you know, trickled down. I was listening to a, a speaker tape of Bill Wilson's, the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. On the day Dr. Bob died, he was in a meeting doing a talk in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous doing a talk. He wasn't with his friend, you know, his road dog, his cohort, his, his co-founder. He was in a meeting that lets me know that this is the most important thing I will do all day today. No matter what happens to me today, this is the most important thing I will do, is sit here and try and carry this message, a, met, a message of depth and weight, a message of hope. There's hope in these rooms. He also said that we don't do, we don't do speeches here in Alcoholics Anonymous, we just share our stories. And that's what I'm gonna attempt to do here tonight is just share my story. I'm gonna attempt to tell you what I was like so that you can identify, so that you can know I know what you've been through. So you can know I'm not just up here running my mouth. So you can identify and know I've been in the dark place. I'm gonna attempt to tell you what happened, what happened to me, how I got here, what I did, in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm gonna tell you what I'm like today so that you can see that the program of action does work, that it does work. I was born in a, a small town, Placerville, California, like a country town in, in Northern, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. right. So I was born in this small town and alcoholism was so right there for me, like, I was surrounded by alcoholics when I was born and my mama died when I was um, almost four years old, a drinking and driving related car accident. And she was an alcoholic. You know, I never knew my daddy. My daddy was never there. He was an alcoholic. So and there was this guy, um, Uncle Phil, in my life before my mama died. This guy named Uncle Phil. And he was dating my mama. He wasn't my real uncle, thank God. I mean, weird. <laughs> But he, he was, this was just, a, I think we called him a term of endearment or whatever, but I was a bedwetting champion of the world. Like I wet my bed every night, gold medalist bedwetter. <laughs> so 
Uncle Phil, alcoholic. Every single person in my life of any substance to me that I look up to is an alcoholic. They say this is a family disease. I don't know if that's true because I've heard people share that there was no alcoholics in their family. So I don't know. But in my case, in my experience, every single person in my life was an alcoholic. So Uncle Phil was an alcoholic and I would pee the bed like a champ every night and, and he would come in and, and, and in his alcoholism, the, the punishment that he saw fit for a, a almost four-year-old child was to take my tidy whities off, my tidy yellows at this point, and make me wear them over my head for a period of time. That was his punishment for a child, is to make me wear my pissy underwear on my head. You know, I'm small, and I'm, I'm looking out of the leg holes, you know what I mean? I'm, when I, like, I got some sort of piss helmet, like pissy Darth Vader or something, I'm just like, I don't, you know... <laughs> I remember just thinking, why is this man doing this to me? What did I, you know, I don't want to piss my bed. I have no power over this. I'm powerless over this. So I get adopted. I get adopted by my auntie, alcoholic, right? Me and my, I have an older brother, Brad, and we get adopted by my aunt and she's an alcoholic. You know, this is, this is, I don't know. It's crazy, but. So, and then we get, we get adopted and I love my mama, man. That's my mama now. You know what I mean? I have brothers and sisters that are cousins. My mama's my auntie, but these are my family in my heart. These are my family. I don't know anything else. This is my family. So my new mama, I love her so much, man. She is an angel. This angel was sent to me, kept me and my brother out of foster care. Right. But she's an alcoholic and, and, and we get adopted into this home, this broken, poverty stricken, rotting down old household of my grandfather's in, a, in, in Placerville. And in that home were the things that come with the alcoholic home and poverty. It wasn't just, you know what I mean? You're, so there was things in that home, like the in the bathroom, the floor was all rotted out from dry rot. Like you could just see the little ecosystem of like rats and cockroaches doing their little thing down there. But, you know, and, and socks were washed towels and all the curtains were like sheets and blankets and we had dogs in that home. So there was fleas everywhere and the dogs would piss all over the house and the whole house smelled like piss. I might have something to do with that, but I blame the dogs. <laughs> so, I'm, you know, I'm growing up in this home and I love my mama, man. I'm not up here to drag my mama, but she was an alcoholic. And she did things like, I remember one Christmas, at this point, I have my younger sister and I have my little brother and me and my older brother. And I remember it was Christmas Eve and she got just wasted and passed out before she, you know, before she wrapped any presents or stuffed stockings. So me and my older brother, we didn't want our little siblings to wake up, you know, Christmas morning like that. So we wrapped the, the presents, we stuffed the stockings, we made Christmas happen as kids, you know, and, and I'm not going to. We weren't great kids, man. We were wild. I don't know. We came into that home so wild already. I don't know if we were that wild because we didn't have a dad. We didn't have dads or our mom died. If, if it's because we, every single person we knew were alcoholics. I'm not sure why I was so wild, but my mama got a handful. She's on welfare, right? She's just doing the best she can as an alcoholic mom. She's just doing her very best. She stopped her dreams 
so that we could try and have ours. She stopped her dreams so that she could keep two boys out of foster care that weren't hers. When I was young, I hear a lot of people in their shares say that they, they felt different. And that's true for me too. I always felt different. I was so uncomfortable. I was so uncomfortable. And I suffer from this delusion that I'm sick, like physically ill. When I was a kid, I was so consumed with the fact that I was dying from some, some you know, illness, cancer, everything. The, the, the commercials that came on TV for like, you know, drugs for like heart disease. Oh man, I got heart disease. And, and then not just that, but, but then the side effects would come on. You know what I mean? It'd be like eye twitching my eye. You know what I mean? <laughs> Even though it was psychosomatic, it was so real to me. It was so real to me. And before I ever picked up a drink or a drug, I found this ritual where I would go like hyperventilate and then go like this. You know what I mean? And <laughs> like, like that guy, David Carradine, you know what happened to him? Anyone know? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but you know I got this I got this sense of relief I got this small sense of relief because I wasn't living in my mind anymore I wasn't stuck in the trap that was my mind the fear the fear was gone it was short and it was fleeting but it was peaceful it was peaceful and I thought I'm going to hang on to this for the rest of my life. I'm going to hang on to this for as long as I can. I don't remember my first drink. I don't. I don't remember my first drink. My life is kind of a blur because much like Clay, I didn't want the heart monitor. I didn't want the ups and the downs. I wanted to be numb. I wanted to not feel. That was my goal in life was to not feel the way I feel because I'm so restless in my own skin. I am in the wrong earth suit for sure. I feel like you guys are normal. How are you normal? How do you do normal things? I can't understand it. So in middle school, I smoke weed and it wasn't like, it was okay because anything to change the way I feel, anything to change the way I feel. But when I found alcohol, now I could breathe. Now I could breathe because I was not breathing. I felt like I hadn't took a breath for the first 12 years of my life. I take a drink and. I've arrived. Like the book talks about, I arrived. And now catch me if you can. I'm going to hold on to this no matter what. No matter what, I'm going to hold on to this feeling. You know, I was at the I was at the birthday parties. I was at the soccer games. I was at these events. But I couldn't really be there. I couldn't be there like I saw the other kids being there. I couldn't have the laughter. I couldn't have because I had this obsession that I was sick. So it was tormenting me. It was tormenting me. And it gave me this, this form of physical anxiety. And still today, I have heart palpitations, right, from anxiety. And I go to the, I, it's so insane. I go to the cardiologist and they put me on this treadmill and my heart's, and they say, you're totally healthy. You are fine. And for a day, I'm okay. And then this obsession comes back. This obsession comes back. <clears throat> so in middle school, I start, I start drinking with my friends. And my life wasn't always terrible. We did. I took uh, Clay back to Sacramento. And uh, 
I showed him, I showed him around, you know, I, I showed him, I showed him uh, the bars I got kicked out of. I showed him the jail I was arrested in. I showed him the bars I'm never allowed in. I showed him where my mother died in a car accident. I showed him the, the bar that my mother worked at, you know, and, and me and a friend, Jerry T, it's our favorite bar. It's called Poor Reds. And um, it was beautiful. And Clay says, on my birthday, he shares, he says, Wyatt's friends saw him and, and, and the look in their eyes, the look in their eyes was insane. But I also showed him this hill where we did the purse trick, right? And if you don't know what the purse trick is, it was like this hill, Missouri road, Missouri flat road goes like this. And there was a hill like 20 feet above. And we would get a, an empty purse and put it on a fishing line. And then we'd sling it in the middle of the road at night. And then car, a car drives by, you see, they see a purse in the road. So they slow down to stop and reel the purse in and then they drive back by and the purse isn't there. And then they jump out of the car, they're looking for the purse. So they jump out of the car, they're looking for the purse. Then they drive off all pissed, you know. I swear I saw a purse. Reel it back in. And then so they go back this way. Well, they got to turn around and go the original way they were coming. So you sling the purse back out there. They sit by, they stop, reel it back in. I saw a purse, you know. But so one night we were doing the purse trick and uh, this, this, this flashlight comes up over the hill and we, you know, cops. So we go to run. And this guy goes, no, 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 no. I just want to do the purse trick with you guys and show my son. So it was, it was pretty cool. That's a good dad. You know what I mean? Like we sat there for hours playing the purse trick with this dad and his little son. It was really cool. So I had good times. I had good times as a kid. But when I, when I got to high school, I found what changed my life and that was opiates. You know, I, that really changed me because what alcohol did for me, this does for me on another level. This does for me on another level. And I start, I start uh, buying Vicodins at school for like 50 cents, you know? And, and I continue doing this and I get physically addicted at this point. I get physically addicted to a substance that I hadn't, I hadn't, I wasn't physically addicted to alcohol. You know what I mean? I drank as much as possible. I'm, I'm the, I'm the alcoholic that, that when I drink, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to have a buzz. I'm going to get obliterated. I'm going to oblivion. Me and my friends, when we were going out to the bar, we'd say, we're going to do the three F's tonight. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Tim, <laughs> fight <laughs> or food, right? And, and, and we usually did it in this order. Either we, we'd fight, and then if those two didn't come to fruition, we'd go like 2.30 a.m. to 24-hour spot, and we'd get food and settle for it. I did good, huh, Tim? Uh-huh. <laughs> Tim hates it when we curse from the podium. So I, I, you know, I find, I find opiates and I graduate high school, which is insane to me. You know, I was, I'm not the student that's in class. I don't go to class. You know, I go just enough to get by. I do the bare minimum. I do the bare minimum. And that's what I did with everything in my life. I did the bare minimum just to get by. I know that I had the ism of alcoholism before I took a drink. That's what makes me a real alcoholic. 
That's what makes me a real alcoholic and not a heavy drinker is because when I drink, it does something different for me. It does something different for me. It gives me relief from the way I feel. It's not just a party. It's to be okay. It's to be okay. I drink to be okay. So I graduate high school with a D minus average, which is sweet. You know what I mean? And, and I, I have to go to adult continuation school and, and I get to walk across the podium, you know, and that was a proud moment for me. It really was. I hadn't done anything in my life of any, of any like purpose of any purpose. I hadn't done anything. I was just, you know, a drinking, drugging loser is, is the, you know, is what I thought about myself. And when I, when I graduated high school, well, when I was 16, right, my, my mama was struggling, struggling to raise us on welfare. You know, and, and when I went to high school, I always felt different because I, I was, the, or even in middle school, I was the dirty kid. You know what I mean? I had the banged up shoes and, and you had Nikes and I had Keds and, you know, remember those with the Velcro strap? But I had a mean older brother too, which is, you know, a plus because any, anyone that messed with me, my brother would just beat, beat him up, right? My brother had hands. He's a little guy, but I seen him like beat up like three guys. One time he was fighting this guy and the guy was winning. And he bit a giant chunk out of his face at the El Dorado County Fair. He did. He did. He bit a big chunk out of his face. And, and, and my brother lost the fight. And I go, dude, you got beat up. He goes, yeah, that guy's never going to look the same. I won for sure. <laughs> I'm like, bro, you're a sick dude, but I love it. You know? So I, I, I move. I think I'm helping my mama. I'm moving out of my house. I'm hurting her, but I think I'm helping her because I'm going to relieve the financial burden of me. I see myself as a burden to this family. And I'm taking all this on and I say, you know what? I'm just going to leave. And, and truthfully, what it was is that I didn't want to follow the rules. I am not a rule follower. Rules don't apply to me. So my mama had some rules that I was supposed to follow. Be home at this time, you know, uh, her thing was moderation. You know what I mean? You can drink and, and smoke weed, but everything's good in moderation. It, it, well, she's a blackout drinker, you know? <laughs> so it's, and I remember one time my mama goes to the bar and she used to carry this pearl handled 25. She pulled it out on cops, like in the bar. Like she got locked up. That was the first pistol I ever held. I wish I still had that gun. I'm not allowed to have guns anymore. I still wish I had that gun. So I move out at 16. My mama says, if you're not going to follow the rules, you can't be here. So now I'm homeless at 16 years old. I'm still in high school and I'm homeless. And I'm not under a bridge homeless, but I'm, I'm homeless on my friend's couches. You know what I mean? I'm staying with this friend for a month, that friend for a month. And so I, I graduate high school and I, I find this, this drug. I'm drinking as much as possible. It's pretty much every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday at this point. But I find this drug called Oxycontin, right? Love that shit. But that's what brought me to my knees. That's what changed my world forever. And from probably 18 to 25, I was homeless, drinking, doing Oxycontin, selling weed, and not going anywhere. Not going anywhere in my life. I didn't see a future for myself. I didn't see a future. I just saw, uh, you know, a loser, really. That's what I felt like. I just felt like a loser. If you can, you know, understand. I just, I, I didn't understand what was wrong with me. I didn't know about alcoholism. I didn't know why I felt the way I felt. But at, at, at 25 years old, I go to treatment. 
I go to treatment. I'm doing this traveling construction job. So I've got to come home on the weekend, cop enough dope to be able to stay well through the week at this traveling construction job so I don't get sick and then come home, cop. It was so exhausting. It was so exhausting, man. I was tired. Already at 25 years old, I was exhausted with life. I was so over life. I said, you know what? Let me, let me try and go to treatment. I'm living with my sister at this time. My, my sister, she's my cousin, remember, but she's my sister, Natalie. I have her tattooed right here on my arm. And, and right before I go to treatment, I, I'm at, my, my sister is a, a meth addict, an alcoholic, everyone in my life, nobody in my life is normal, a normie, right? Nobody. So I'm sitting in the house and she has a son named Devin. This kid is my life. I have his name tattooed right here. And we did everything together. I helped raise this little boy. And so me and Devin were sitting on the couch and her boyfriend, she's in the, in the bedroom and Billy comes out and goes, get Devin and get out of here. I go, what? He goes, get Devin and get out of here. So I go, and I go to walk and look what's going on. And my sister's like this, you know, having a, uh, it wasn't even a seizure. She had a stroke, right? So she was biting her tongue and, and seizing up and, and stroking out. And so I get Devin and I, we dip out. I get Devin so he doesn't have to see it. So we're driving, you know, I'm driving back and forth and I see the ambulances. I go, I go back and forth and I go, man, don't die. I've lost too many people. Don't die. And uh, so finally the ambulances are gone. I go back, me and Devin go back in the house and she's in the hospital and she survives. You know, she survives this uh, stroke, meth-induced stroke, man. She survives. And I'm just thanking God and thanking God for not taking another one. Two of my uncles shot themselves in the head from untreated alcoholism. My best friend, uh, Scotty, overdosed in a sober living on Oxycontin and, and all kinds of other pills. But that's not enough to stop me. Seeing seizures, losing family members, people shooting themselves, friends overdosing. It's not enough to stop me because I cannot be this restless. I feel like I'm going to explode inside. I can't deal with it anymore. I can't deal with it anymore. So I'm going to drink and drug. I will run over the top of you to get what I want. I will steal Vicodin from my dying grandmother. I swear to God, I will. Because it's not personal anymore. It's, it, it's not personal. It's just business. It's not personal. It's just business. I have to get high regardless. So at 25 years old, I go to a treatment center in Placerville, California. It's called Gate, what was it? Gates Recovery. I can never remember that before. It's called, it was a dump, right? And it, and it, and it wasn't a 12-step centered recovery program. I thought you just go to treatment. I didn't know about the 12 steps. Maybe it could have saved me years of infinite suffering if this was a 12-step recovery program, but it wasn't. You know, I thought they'd just go and like wave a wand over your head or burn some incense and you leave there and you're cured. I really thought that. I just thought you kicked the drugs and the dope and you're cured. But that wasn't the case. And I do what any good 25 year old does in treatment. I met a 19 year old smoke show, bro. I was crushing it. She was so far out of my league, bro. I was killing it. You know, I, shit got weird in the bathroom there. You know, it was, it was fun. But, but I, I leave, I leave treatment and I go to this, I go to this sober living in Placerville. I have every single worldly belonging to my name in this sober living. And I swear to God, I, I, could, I could swear to God when I left that day that I would have been back that night. I'm not going to leave every single thing I own in this sober living. There's no way. And I'm convinced of this. I'm just going to my friend Billy's house 
just to hang out. But in my mind, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just a junkie. I'm not an alcoholic. I can have some drinks. So I go to Billy's house and I have a couple beers, a bunch of beers, right? A couple. Never have had a couple of, my, of anything in my life. I have a bunch of beers and I never go back to that sober living. I never go back there. Every single thing I own is gone and I don't even care. I don't even think about it. So again, I do what a, a you know, grown man does and I move in with my girlfriend's dad in the room she grew up in. There's like my little ponies on the wall, pink bed skirts and shit got weird, dude. So, so we're living there and this, this kind man that takes a kid in off the street that's lost and has nowhere to go. What do we do to repay him? We start stealing his checks. We start stealing checks from this man to the tune of thousands of dollars, right? Thousands of dollars. And, and he comes in and goes, yo, I know you're stealing my checks. I know this. I know that. And Kristen takes all the blame. She takes all the blame. And I don't care because I'm too selfish and self-centered. What do I got? 15 minutes, Shelly? All right, let me get sober. Am I sober yet? No, I'm still shot out. So I, I stand in a methadone clinic with this girl for years and years and years in South Sacramento in the ghetto for years. And then she's going to get sober and I can't do it. I love her so much. All I got to do is clean up to keep her and I can't do it. I can't do it, man. I can't get sober. And she leaves me and it crushes me. And for 10 more years, I stood in that methadone clinic. That's where I met this man right here, Methadone Robbie, my boy. <laughs> so he, I, I go to treatment at a place called Oceanfront. I go to treatment and, and they bring me to the Canyon Club. They walk me through the two double doors, those iconic doors. And my life changed. I didn't even know my life changed in that moment. I had no idea. And I come in and I think I'm a loser. Why? You're just a loser, man. You're a loser. You lost it life. It's over for you. That's what I honestly felt in my heart that I was. And men like Clay and Tim and these people and Deborah Carmen. Hi, Deb. I see you. People like this told me, Wyatt, you're not a loser. You're just an alcoholic and we have a solution. And I thought maybe, maybe is so big for me. Because as soon as I thought maybe there was a chance for me, as soon as I thought maybe this could work, there's a chance for me. So I do things that don't make any sense to me. You guys are talking about God. You guys are talking about 12 steps. You guys are talking about meetings. You guys are talking about helping the new guy. You guys are talking about these things that don't make any sense to me. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've been through? I'm more unique than you. It might work for you. It's not going to work for a guy like me. But I do it anyway. I do it anyway because I'm hopeless. And I feel there's a little bit of hope in there. That maybe was big. So I stand up as a newcomer. Wild, too straight out the streets. I think I'm too hard for Laguna Beach. <laughs> Shit got weird. Like, you know, but but ultimately, I did I just didn't care how I felt. I did it anyway. And I get 30 days, and I think maybe. I get 90 days, I think maybe. I start doing the work. I start really doing the work that we do here in Alcoholics Anonymous. You are not gonna come in this room and just get it by not putting pen to paper. It's not going to happen. I, I can promise you that I put in so much work over the last one year and 15 days. You know, I took my, I took my birthday at BJ's and like 80 people showed up. No, nobody, 80 people don't show up for me for nothing. You know what I mean? 80 people showed up. And when they sang happy birthday to me, it was a spiritual experience. It was a spiritual experience. And that's the only thing that's going to save an alcoholic 
of my type. And when you remove the drink and the drug from me, I go right back to that restless, irritable, and discontentedness that I felt before I ever picked up. That's how I know I'm a real alcoholic because alcohol isn't my problem. Alcohol is not my problem. It's the way I feel is my problem. And I learned about alcoholism. I learned that I have an obsession of the mind that tells me it's going to be different this time. Why? It's going to be different. You're not going to get shot at. You're not going to end up in treatment. People aren't going to die around you. It will be different. And the second I give into that, then this is phenomenon of craving. I'm allergic. I'm allergic to it, man. And once I take it, once I give in, I take it. It's, it's on. It's on and I can't stop until I am stopped. And for me, it's jails, institutions, and death is how I get stopped. And I've, I've actually done all three. Remember when I overdosed and you saved my life? I, I got three out of three, baby. So I learned these things. And then I learned that, that I have a soul sickness. I have a soul sickness. So what is medicine for the soul? Spirituality. So I, I come here. I come here to... to any problem I have in my life, it's more AA, which leads me to more God, which leads me to be able to help more people. That's my purpose, man. A guy like me found a purpose in life. I did not think my purpose was to drink and drug myself to death. I thought I didn't have a purpose, which is almost worse to a guy like me. I got sponsees today, man. I've done this little experiment every day for one year and 15 days. I've done this little experiment I talk about where I get up, I pray, I meditate for a few minutes, and I set out to help the new guy. I set out to help the new guy, and that's what keeps me sober. You know, I heard a speaker, it was fire too. He goes, we come to meetings to report on what we're doing out there. We just come here to report. I'm just here to report to what I'm doing. This morning, I worked a step with the new guy, you know? And I was so anxious last night. I felt so terrible at the speaker meeting last night. I couldn't even hear the guy. But today when I got on my knees and prayed with my guy right here, you know, I felt something. We stood up. I said, you feel that, Richard? Because I feel that. I feel that. That's God. Right? That to me is God. God is love. God is love, man. You know, I, I got... I got to the Canyon Club and sometimes I can't see this program working inside me because I'm new still, man. I'm here for the new person because I'm new. I'm new. I can't sit up here and quote the book. And, and, and I, I hear these, you know, these Pacific group speakers and these guys that are just amazing. Amazing. I don't have that experience yet, but what I can do is share what I've been through and, and what I have learned so far in my short time. And, and, one of the most, sometimes I can't see it myself, like I said, but one of the things that was so crazy to me is I came to Oceanfront, I get 30, 60, 90, four months, five months, six months, and my boy Methadone Robbie, man, he sees me on Facebook posting and he goes, something's happening to Wyatt. I don't know what's happening to him. Something's happening to Wyatt down there in Southern California. And he hits me up and he goes, dude, I need help. I need help. I didn't tell him to get treatment. It was attractive to him. It was attractive to him that something was happening to me. And I didn't say, I found God, dude, in 12 steps. Come down. It's great. He'd be like, you're out of your mind, dude. He just saw it. He saw that I was changing. And he came to Oceanfront as well. And he's got almost six months today. Yeah. Oh. 
And when I don't see it working in me, I just look to the new guy. I just look to the new guy and I see it working in them. And I don't need to see it working in me. My purpose isn't to, to save myself. My purpose is to get well so that I can help you. That is my purpose. Where are we at, Shelly? Eight minutes. I want to talk about the powerlessness. No, I want to talk about the unmanageability. The powerlessness is pretty evident to me. The unmanageability on the outside is clear, but I don't even really care about those things. I don't care so much about the cars and, the, and, the, and this and the that, but the, the pain and the hurt I feel inside that I don't even want to live anymore, that's the unmanageability that I cannot deal with. That's the unmanageability that will have me put a gun in my mouth. I honestly feel like drugs and alcohol kept me alive long enough to find you. I do. Because I wasn't going to make it. I wasn't going to make it. I was too miserable. It kept me alive long enough to find you. And you kept me sober long enough to find God. You kept me sober long enough to do this work right here, put pen to paper, take an inventory, find out what was wrong inside, find out who I hurt. And through forgiving them, I'm forgiving myself and I'm feeling better. And these promises start to come true. You know, that treatment center that I went to, I work there today. I work at that same treatment center and I stand up on this, this deck where I was in detox. And I look down on Laguna Beach. And I remember being so sick up there thinking, man, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. I got nothing left. Got nothing. I got nothing left. And I stand up there today and I look down on Laguna Beach and just go, wow. Really? From Alcoholics Anonymous, I've got this life. It's crazy. That sister that I love so much died in a uh, drinking and driving car accident, just like my mama, man. I remember my girlfriend called me. I was working at a Chevron and selling weed. And she called me and goes, you have to come home, Wyatt. I go, I'm not coming home. I'm at work, babe. She goes, you have to come home. And I could hear something in her voice. I said, I'm not leaving unless you tell me what's wrong. She said, Natalie died. Those words, man, I could just hear them. I could hear them ringing over and over and over. Natalie died. Natalie died. And when my mama died, I remember my, my grandpa, this strong man, this man that doesn't have feelings, this man that is a cowboy that is just, the, he, you know what I mean? He is, he's strong. Thank you, Shelly. He, he's strong. He doesn't cry. He, you know, he's a Copenhagen cowboy. You know, he's a course banquet cowboy. You know what I mean? He's, he's that kind of guy. But when my mama died, I have this image of him falling into my grandmother's arms in despair, just crying, sobbing. And when I got home to my girlfriend that day, it was deja vu, man. I tumbled into Kristen's arms, just, just destroyed, just completely destroyed. But that wasn't even enough. That wasn't enough. You know, I love this. I love this right here. In, in chapter five that we always read, remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, without power, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power, which I lack. That one is God. May you find him now, right now. It doesn't suggest that you find him next week. That one is God. May you find him right now. You know what I mean? Because if I don't, I'm in trouble. 
If I don't find a power greater than myself that can restore me to sanity so that I can chase the new guy down and try and help him, I am in big trouble. I like to end my talks with a few thoughts. And for me to understand great peace, you must have first felt great pain. And I asked God, I said, God, how can I believe in you when you're something I just can't see? And God said, my son, you can't see oxygen, but you believe you can breathe. I'm blessed and highly favored. Thank you for letting me share with you.